Please take your Bible and turn to the book of 1 Peter, the third chapter. We continue our study of this great epistle from the Apostle Peter in the heart of God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 reads as follows, And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But if, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the things in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame." For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison." who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Dwight Moody was arguably the greatest preacher of the gospel in the 19th century. And this is what he said about you and I as Christians. The Christian is the world's Bible. In so saying, he really echoed what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 when he said, You are letters of Christ written in our hearts to be read and known by all men. So we who know Jesus... We who set apart Christ as Lord in our lives are to be a representation of Him to others and, in essence, the very being of God to others. When people read you or read me, what do they learn? Do they see people who are downtrodden, defeated, disheartened? Or do they see people who have hope in their lives? The people to whom these words were first written lived in a cauldron of persecution. They were under intense scrutiny and pressure from without and sometimes from within, from the fears which were stirred within their own hearts in the face of such persecution. The book of 1 Peter is really a treatise on how to deal with suffering at the hands of those who hate Christ and therefore hate us who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. In this passage, as Peter writes to these people, telling them to set apart Christ as Lord in their hearts, he says, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. The big question for us this morning is, do we have hope in our hearts? And the idea of biblical hope differs from the world's view of hope. The world's view of hope is basically wishful thinking. I hope 
I get a raise. I hope I score well enough on my entrance exam for college to get into an upper-level institution of learning. I hope that I remain well through this season of life. I hope, I hope, I hope. All those things are really speculative. They are wishful thinking. However, when the Bible speaks of hope, it's not talking about things which are wishes. It's talking about things we can count on because they're based upon the nature of God who cannot lie, as well as the promises of God which are designed to infuse our hearts with hope. So how do we gain this hope? Well, it comes from God. The Bible says in the book of Romans chapter 15, verse 13, Now may the God of hope, just stop there just a moment, What that could be interpreted as saying is, now the God who produces hope, the source of hope that is spoken of in Scripture and the kind of hope that we want is that which is produced by God Himself. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope. And the word translated abound, that's a word which was used outside the New Testament to describe a river which had overflowed its banks. Have you ever seen a river that overflows its banks? We never see that anymore here, do we? But we kind of live in an old floodplain here. You can see it when you go down to the Rio and you look on either side. It's really flat for quite a while. That was the original channel. And many times that channel got outside of its banks and flooded. Our hope that God produces is not just a little bit of hope. It's not just an on-again, off-again kind of hope. It is an abounding hope. May that hope keep on abounding is the idea. Keep overflowing by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the hope that is ours in Christ is that which is produced by God and it is generated by the power of the Spirit in our lives as we believe. Remember what it says? May all joy and peace be yours in believing. It's by faith. Now, here's one more thing before we get to the text. I need to get there pretty soon. In that same chapter of Romans 15, the Bible says, Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scripture, we might have hope. If I'm suffering from a deficiency of hope in my life, it's directly related to a refusal on my part to expose myself regularly to the Word of God because encouragement comes through the Scripture. That's why we teach the Bible in this church. This is why you probably are tired of hearing me say it, but read your Bible. Not to fulfill some sort of religious obligation, but to grow in intimacy With the living God. We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus is alive. And He's not just alive here and there. He's alive in you and me if we know Jesus. Therefore, He is the fountainhead of hope in us as we trust Him. Do we have that kind of hope? Well, what prompts such a question? The question that is asked Peter anticipates it. The Spirit of God anticipates it from our lives. 
when someone asks us to make a defense as to the hope that is in us. What causes people to ask such questions? We don't linger long here. We looked at this last week. It's when we suffer injustice at the hands of people who really hate Christ. And therefore, by our association with Christ, they don't care much for us either. It's calmly suffering persecution and injustice. It causes people who meet out that kind of persecution, that kind of injustice, as well as the onlookers who observe us when we are suffering. It causes them to scratch their heads and ask why, why, and how can a person do that kind of suffering? Suffering, we saw last time, for doing good deeds. Imagine that. Someone punishing someone simply for doing good deeds with a whole heart, being passionate about that. We're not to be alarmed by their threats. And the reason we don't have to be alarmed, we saw this last week too, but let's look at the passage that was read earlier. You don't have to turn there. You can if you wish. In Matthew 10, 28 and following, what does Jesus say? Don't be afraid of Him who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. In other words, don't be afraid of man. That's what it boils down to. Don't be afraid of people. But be afraid of Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, this will come as a surprise and maybe a little shocking surprise to you. But the one who can destroy the soul and body in hell is God Himself. He holds your future in terms of the destiny If you do not know Him, you will suffer that fate. We should fear God. We saw last week that one of the characteristics of a person who has Jesus Christ as his or her Lord, if I have set apart Christ as Lord in my heart, in addition to the fact that I will follow Him, I will also fear Him. Imagine that. Jesus to be feared? Well, that's what the New Testament teaches. The Bible says that we are to be submitted to one another in the body of Christ out of the fear of Christ. We are to look at Him in this way. But here's the good news. Guess what happens when we live in this kind of relationship with Jesus? If we fear the Lord, this is what's true of us. Psalm 118, verse 6 says this. It says, The Lord is at my side. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The answer is a resounding nada. Nothing, no person can hurt me without the permission of God. And God is expert in turning the tables on Satan and all those who would associate with him rather than with God when we are in a situation which creates suffering in our lives. This is what the Lord does. He causes even the suffering to become a blessing. Didn't we see this last week? Isn't that what the text says? Look at 14 again. Verse 14 says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And the word blessed, some translations translated congratulations to that person. Really, the idea of being blessed in this way is to be privileged. It's a privilege to be connected in such a way to the Lord that we, by our identification with Him, have a certain amount of persecution with which we deal. This is part 
of what God has called us to. We don't have to look for someone to persecute us. We just follow Christ. I want to share an illustration before we go to the rest of the message. A co-ed Christian young lady getting ready to go off to university. Her prayer was during the summer that she, if her roommate was not a believer in Christ, would be instrumental in introducing her roommate to the Lord. She didn't know who her roommate was. She knew a name. She'd seen a photo of her. But that was the extent of her communication with this lady or her knowledge of this young lady. She arrived and certainly she discovered this lady was not a follower of Christ. But soon after she begins school, she began to have problems with allergies, a new region of the country. She was sickly throughout the entire time. She had not been accustomed to the intensity of demands on her intellectually and academically, the hours of study. And she just spent most of her time studying or lying in the bed rather sick. She was very disappointed when the semester ended because she had not had one meaningful conversation with her roommate about the person of Christ and about her roommate's lack of relationship to the Lord. She went home, glad to be finished with her first semester, but saddened by the fact that her roommate had not heard the gospel from her. When she returned about a month later, her roommate was there before her. She walked into the dorm room, same dorm room, same roommate, but really a changed roommate. This lady was smiling from ear to ear, this young lady. And this young lady who had meant to witness to her the semester before said, what's happened to you? And she said, I have met Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I have crowned him my king. And this girl was just overwhelmed. And she said, that is so good. And the young lady who had just come to Jesus said to her roommate, and you are the primary person who introduced me to him. And she said, I never really talked about Jesus to you. But she said, I watched you in your private life with Christ, reading the Bible and praying. And then I watched the way you suffered and the dignity with which you suffered. You never complained. And that is what triggered my deep interest in knowing the Lord. Now, we are to share Christ with people. Are we not? Verbally, we're to share the gospel. People cannot come to know Christ. We've learned this in the book of 1 Peter and other places in the Bible for that matter, that we're born again, how? By the living and abiding Word of God. It's God's Word. It's Scripture, the voice of God coming through Scripture, mediated by the Holy Spirit to us, which calls us to life out of death. But what we need to understand is there must be this coordination between the words we say and the way that we behave, the temperament that we display. And that would be a temperament of hope, a temperament of peace, the fruit of the Spirit. St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel everywhere you go. If necessary, use words. He was making a good point. Joseph Aldrich picks up on this in his book, Lifestyle Evangelism. He says that most Training in evangelism is how to share the gospel. The scriptures that are necessary to help a person understand that he or she needs Christ. And then the steps which are to be taken in the presentation of the message. And there's very little teaching on 
who we are. We are, according to Jesus, He says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses. Notice He does not say, you shall do witnessing. You shall be my witnesses. And so we are to be before we can expect any doing to come out of our lives. It's represented in what Jesus says in John 15. He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, then what's going to happen? You're going to bear much fruit. And what does a branch do? It just is, right? It abides. It is in the vine. And that's what we're to be in our relationship to the Lord. We're to be in the vine, in that kind of dependent relationship. And the result is fruit is born through the branches, right? Whose fruit is it? It's the vine's fruit, is it? The branches are there to support the mission of the vine. Who is the true vine? Jesus is the true vine. And we're to live in that kind of relationship with Him. Now, I don't know about grapes. I don't know much about grape growing. I eat them. I ate some yesterday. I'll probably eat some this week sometime. I like grapes. I never have really taken careful notice of, I guess you'd say, the process by which grapes come into being. I know about other fruit trees, though, or fruit plants. Usually there is a blossom before the fruit. Am I right about that? Have you ever walked into an orchard when the blossoms are on the trees? Maybe an apple orchard or a cherry orchard or a peach orchard. Have you ever walked into a grove of trees? And when you walk in, when they're in bloom, there's a beautiful scent which comes. That scent is the aroma. And when we think about ourselves as abiding in Christ, what happens? The aroma of Christ. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He said, we are like the fragrance of Christ wherever we go. We're the fragrance of Jesus. And it's a good fragrance. It gets the attention of people. It's the hope that is in us that draws people to the point of wanting to hear what we say. Aldrich says, we're so busy about getting the words out that we don't Let the music be heard. I don't know about you, but the thing which typically gets my attention when I'm hearing a song, if I'm driving along and have the radio on, I hear a song, the thing that grabs me first are not the lyrics, the words. What grabs you first? It's the music, isn't it? The tune is what gets my attention. So if that's true with regard to music, definitely it's true with regard to our relationship with the Lord. We are to be witnesses. Well, enough said about that. What is necessary, second question, to give a proper response to a question as to the source of the hope that is in us? What is necessary? Well, let me borrow a motto. We have some Boy Scouts in the room, or former Scouts. I guess once a Scout, always a Scout. What is your motto? Be prepared. Isn't that what Peter writes here in 15? Always being ready. Some of your translations actually say, always be prepared. Well, how do we get prepared? Set apart Christ as Lord in your life. Recognize Him as your master, your owner, your king, 
your God. There is no other God but Him. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. There is no other God besides Him. He brooks no rival. And we put Him where He belongs in that place in our lives. When are we to do it? Well, what does the text say? Always being ready. Always be prepared. There's never a moment when I am not to be prepared to give an answer. I should be at the ready all the time. And how does that work? How can I be ready at all times? Am I supposed to be sort of jittery, wondering, is this the one? Is that the one? Am I, am I going to be asked? Am I? It's not anything to be nervous about. It's the product of our abiding in Christ. It's the product of being in Christ. The Bible says in Isaiah 50, verse 4, The Lord God has given me the tongue of a disciple so that I may have a word to sustain the weary one. When I run across somebody who's weary, and this happens to me probably a little more frequently than you because of my position, but if you're a follower of Jesus, I was having a conversation with a lady yesterday, and I asked her, I bet, after we'd conversed a while, I'd be willing to bet that a lot of people come to you with needs and just are gravitating to you because they sense in you something that is extraordinary. And she looked at me rather dumbfoundedly and she said, how did you know that? That's true. I said, because of the hope that's in you. Because of Christ in you. And because of the way you relate to Him. And that's for us as well. That the Lord would give us that kind of abiding relationship with Him. And He wants us to have it. He would not have commanded us to abide in Him if it were not the case. And the result of this is He gives us what we need to say the moment that we are put in that position. We also read from the same chapter of Matthew, chapter 10, not to worry about what we'll say if we're handed over to the courts. Why? Because the Spirit of your Father in heaven will give you what to say. And it will be the result of our spending time in intimacy with Him, listening to Him speak to us by His Spirit, through His Word, and lo and behold, He will give us things to share in moments difficult. Well, why are we to be prepared? Well, the obvious answer is people will ask regarding this hope. Some of you have been ministered to by the writings of Lee Strobel. He's a great Christian apologist in America, in the English-speaking world. He was an atheist before he came to Christ. He was a law school graduate. He worked as an editor for one of the major newspapers in Chicago. He came to Christ, really through the witness of his wife. The way she came to Christ, about a year and a half, she just lived it out before her husband. And he came to faith in Jesus. He hadn't said much about his faith, but he knew something had changed in his life. He had a responsibility to be in charge of the paper a section of it. He was the editor of a section of the paper. And a couple of real big stories broke one day. And time was of the essence. There was a little bit of time. Reporters were trying to check their sources to discover more detail on the story, not to misreport. And they wanted a scoop for their paper and for their careers. And there was a lot of 
flaring of tempers as a result. But what Lee Strobel said, he recognized something about himself that he had never recognized before with such a scenario. There had been other scenarios similar to that scenario in that newspaper office. This is what he said. I was like an island of calm in the midst of the chaos of the day. His boss, after everything had settled, the deadline came, it was met, his boss had witnessed all this, and his boss said to him, Strobel, how did you get through the day without blowing your top? He must have seen Strobel blow his top many times before in such situations. And then, without giving Strobel an opportunity to answer, this is what he said to Lee Strobel. He said, Strobel, what's this Christianity thing all about? Strobel had never witnessed him, but the word had gotten out that he'd come to Christ. And the aroma of Christ was permeating that room, that office area of the paper. And he was able to share the gospel of Christ. He said he got cotton mouth when he was asked that question. You know what cotton mouth is. You get real dry, you, you don't think you can say a word. He, but he said, I sort of stumbled and fumbled through it and had great impact on his boss. Well, the good news is people will ask us and we will have something, God willing, to share with them. There's another figure in history, more prominent than Lee Strobel. His name's David Livingston. Suppose you know the story. A man by the name of Stanley himself somewhat of a journalist, went looking for Livingston. And when he saw him, he said, uh, Mr. Livingston, I presume, because he was the only non-African in the region. And this is what he wrote later. Listen to this. He said, I was with him for four months in 1871. I went to him as prejudiced as the biggest atheist in London. I was out there away from a worldly world. I saw this solitary old man there and asked myself, why on earth does he stop here? For months after we met, I found myself listening to him and wondering at the old man's carrying out all that was said in the Bible. He was zealous for good deeds, right? Little by little, his sympathy for others became contagious. Mine was awakened seeing his piety his gentleness, his zeal, his earnestness, and how he went quietly about his business. I was converted by him, although he had not tried to do it. Do you know, if you and I are filled with the hope that comes from God, and we are filled with joy and peace in believing, what's going to happen is, you're going to be a person that, is like a magnet to people who are hungry for something real. They may not know what the real deal is, but they are hungry because of the presence of Jesus Christ in your life. Well, answering this question, why people will ask us regarding our hope, leads me to say so we can give them an explanation. You know, the Holy Spirit is involved in all of this. I hope you know. And... He wants us to give an explanation. And it's not up to us to figure it out. Let's look at verse 15 again. 
always being ready to make a defense, so give an answer to everyone who asks you to give an account. And this word account is the word explanation, actually. It, as we saw last week, in its original language, the Greek language, it's the word that is the mother word from which our word logic or our word logical is derived. It comes from that word. So it's a logical account. And we get the account here. Look at verse 18. Here's the account. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh. Let's stop right there. The death of Jesus Christ was for our sins. And it was a violent death. How do we know that? Because there's one word translated, having been put to death. All those five English words translate one Greek word. And that word was always used to describe execution. Death by execution. And what was the method of execution? In Rome, in the empire, what was the tool of execution? It was a cross. The most hideous form of execution ever devised by man. The cross. I wish I had time to go into it, but I don't. But just understand, it was an awful death. It was a violent death, a brutal death. Jesus died violently, but many other people had died violently. He also died vicariously. What I mean by that, he died as our substitute. Isn't that what the Bible says here? The just for the unjust. Christ also died for sins once for all. The just. He doesn't have to die over and over and over again. He only had to die one time. The just, that would be speaking of Jesus, for us, we are the unjust. The righteous for the unrighteous. The Bible says about us, it's not flattering the picture that the Bible paints, but it's a true picture. There is none righteous, no, not one. None of us is righteous, but there is one righteous one, only one who's ever lived, only one human. His name is Jesus Christ, and he died for us in our place. He substituted for us, and this is what happened. God the Father poured out all of his stored up wrath upon Jesus, stored up wrath for your sin and my sin upon Jesus. Jesus loved us enough to die. The Bible said God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a gospel. Jesus Christ. This is the kind of God we have. This is the kind of Lord that we can set apart in our hearts. And this is our privilege to have hope as a result because he lives in us and he gives us incredible hope for this life but even beyond in the blessed hope. When Christ comes again, he died for us. There's a story which is told, set in the early 20th century on the plains of this country, about a fire which broke out. It was wheat country. And this fire raged across the prairie. And it was taking out farm after farm after farm. Finally, there was a farm which it came to. And the people had anticipated the coming. And there had been trenches, breaks that had been dug and prepared to try to stop the fire. Others had tried, but they had not been able to because of the ferocity of the wind. But when it got to this particular farm, the winds died down, and it did destroy most of the farmland, but not all of it. When the owner of the farm began to walk over the charred remains of his farm, he came to the scorched 
body of a hen. And he looked at the hen. And just without thinking, he just kind of turned it over with his foot. And lo and behold, under the body of this hen were about four little chicks alive. The mother hen had burned to death to protect her young. Do you know what Jesus did? He did something more courageous than that. Because when He died for us, this is in this text, we can't see it and appreciate it with our English reading eyes. But look at verse 18 again. For Christ also died for sins. That little word for is not translated translated in a way that would cause us to see the word. Listen to the word. It's a preposition, of course. Peri. P-E-R-I. We have the word perimeter. What does that speak of? An area, doesn't it? A perimeter. Boundaries. Peri. Jesus died in this way. He laid Himself on top of us and then He surrounded us so that the wrath of God could not come to scorch us. That's what Jesus has done for us. For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that He might bring us to God. Do you know there's only one way to God? Are you aware of that? The Bible says in the book of 1 Timothy, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way. That's what He says. There is no other way except through Me. That's what He says. There's a story set in the Civil War era, actually the post-Civil War era of America. There was a family who had one son, and they loved him. They were a well-to-do family, and they loved this child. They wished they could have others, but they were unable to. They loved this son. And when the time came for the war, the father pled with his son, Son, I can get someone to go in your place. I have means. I can protect you. And he said, But Father, I want to represent my nation. He was with the Union Army. And he went to war. And correspondence began to come. And it was back and forth between him and his parents. Until one day, there were no more letters. Until finally, a report came from Washington, D.C. that their son had been killed in battle. You can imagine how grief-stricken they were to receive that news. Then, after the war had been over for a short while, a a, a transient, a hobo, came to the door and knocked on the back door. And the lady of the house went and opened it, and she said, what can we do for you? And he said, I am here asking for your help. And she said, I must talk to my husband. She didn't give him an opportunity to say anything else. She shut the door, went and told her husband. Her husband came back and said, we have nothing to help you with here. He looked down on this man because he was a poor man, a beggar, as it were. And then the man said to the wealthy father, bereaved of his son, he said, I was asked to give this to you by your son. And he handed him a note. It was pretty well worn, soiled. But when the father opened it up, immediately he recognized the handwriting. It was his son's, Charles' writing. And the gist of the note was, Father, 
I'm writing this letter as I'm dying on the battlefield. This is my friend. And he named the man who held the note and had given it to him. He has been the best friend I've ever had. And I'm writing this to you to say he is a man who is not privileged like I am to have been raised in a wealthy home. And I'm asking you, Father, to take care of him as if you were taking care of me. And then, through tears, this father looked at the signature, and this is what he said, signing off, for Charles' sake. And then he wrote his name. Jesus did that for you. For Mike's sake. Put your own name in there. What is your name? Put your name there. For your sake, Jesus died for you. So that you could have this living hope in your heart. Would you bow your heads right now? Have you ever received Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Do you know Him? He died for you. Christ died for you. And He's alive. And He would say, I want you to be my follower. But you have to receive me on my terms as your Lord and then as your Savior. Have you ever said to the Lord Jesus, Lord, take me. I know I don't deserve it, but take me, Lord. Would you please forgive me of my sin and come into my life and give me forgiveness and eternal life. Would you ask Jesus for that right now, just in your own heart, the privacy of your own heart, ask Him. Thank you, Lord, for the miracle of forgiveness and how in an instant we can be new creations. And I pray for those who pray to receive you here, that they would profess you as their Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen.